Chapter sixty two, part three of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty two Greek Emperors of Nice and Constantinople, part three. I shall not, I trust, be accused of superstition, but I must remark that, even in this world, the natural order of events will sometimes afford the strong appearance of moral retribution. The first Paleologus had saved his empire by involving the kingdoms of the West in rebellion and blood, and from these scenes of discord uprose a generation of iron men, who assaulted and endangered the empire of his son. In modern times our debts and taxes are the secret poison which still corrodes the bosom of peace, but in the weak and disorderly government of the Middle Ages it was agitated by the present evil of the disbanded armies. Too idle to work, too proud to beg, the mercenaries were accustomed to a life of rapine. They could rob with more dignity and effect under a banner and a chief, and the sovereign, to whom their service was useless, and their presence importunate, endeavoured to discharge the torrent on some neighbouring countries. After the peace of Sicily, many thousands of Genoese, Catalans, etc., who had fought, by sea and land, under the standard of Anjou or Aragon, were blended into one nation by the resemblance of their manners and interest. They heard that the Greek provinces of Asia were invaded by the Turks, they resolved to share the harvest of pay and plunder, and Frederick, king of Sicily, most liberally contributed the means of their departure. In a warfare of twenty years, a ship or a camp was become their country, arms were their sole profession and property, valour was the only virtue which they knew, their women had imbibed the fearless temper of their lovers and husbands. It was reported that with a stroke of their broadsword the Catalans could cleave a horseman and a horse, and the report itself was a powerful weapon. Roger de Flore was the most popular of their chiefs, and his personal merit overshadowed the dignity of his prouder rivals of Aragon. The offspring of a marriage between a German gentleman of the court of Frederick II and a damsel of Brindisi, Roger was successively a Templar, an apostate, a pirate, and at length the richest and most powerful admiral of the Mediterranean. He sailed from Messina to Constantinople with eighteen galleys, four great ships, and eight thousand adventurers, and his previous treaty was faithfully accomplished by Andronicus the Elder, who accepted with joy and terror this formidable succour. A palace was allotted for his reception, and a niece of the emperor was given in marriage to the valiant stranger, who was immediately created duke or admiral of Romania. After a decent repose he transported his troops over the Propontis, and boldly led them against the Turks. In two bloody battles thirty thousand of the Muslims were slain, he raised the siege of Philadelphia, and deserved the name of Deliverer of Asia. But after a short season of prosperity, the cloud of slavery and ruin again burst on that unhappy province. The inhabitants escaped, says a Greek historian, from the smoke into the flames, and the hostility of the Turks was less pernicious than the friendship of the Catalans. The lives and fortunes which they had rescued they considered as their own. The willing or reluctant maid was saved from the race of circumcision for the embraces of a Christian soldier. The exaction of fines and supplies was enforced by licentious rapine and arbitrary executions, and on the resistance of Magnesia the great duke besieged a city of the Roman Empire. These disorders he excused by the wrongs and passions of a victorious army, 
nor would his own authority or person have been safe, had he dared to punish his faithful followers, who were defrauded of the just and covenanted price of their services. The threats and complaints of Andronicus disclosed the nakedness of the empire. His golden bull had invited no more than five hundred horse and a thousand foot-soldiers, yet the crowds of volunteers, who migrated to the east, had been enlisted and fed by his spontaneous bounty. While his bravest allies were content with three byzants or pieces of gold, for their monthly pay, an ounce, or even two ounces of gold, were assigned to the Catalans, whose annual pension would thus amount to near a hundred pounds sterling. One of their chiefs had modestly rated at three hundred thousand crowns the value of his future merits, and above a million had been issued from the treasury for the maintenance of these costly mercenaries. A cruel tax had been imposed on the corn of the husbandman, one-third was retrenched from the salaries of the public officers, and the standard of the coin was so shamefully debased that of the four-and-twenty parts only five were of pure gold. At the summons of the emperor, Roger evacuated a province which no longer supplied the materials of rapine, but he refused to disperse his troops, and while his style was respectful, his conduct was independent and hostile. He protested that if the emperor should march against him, he would advance forty paces to kiss the ground before him, but in rising from this prostrate attitude Roger had a life and sword at the service of his friends. The great Duke of Romania condescended to accept the title and ornaments of Caesar, but he rejected the new proposal of the government of Asia with the subsidy of corn and money, on condition that he should reduce his troops to the harmless number of three thousand men. Assassination is the last resource of cowards. The Caesar was tempted to visit the royal residence of Adrianople, in the apartment and before the guards of the empress he was stabbed by the alani guards and though the deed was imputed to their private revenge his countrymen who dwelt at constantinople in the security of peace were involved in the same prescription by the prince or people the loss of their leader intimidated the crowd of adventurers who hoisted the sails of flight and were soon scattered round the coasts of the mediterranean but a veteran band of fifteen hundred Catalans, or French, stood firm in the strong fortress of Gallipoli on the Hellespont, displayed the banners of Aragon, and offered to revenge and justify their chief, by an equal combat of ten or a hundred warriors. Instead of accepting this bold defiance, the Emperor Michael, the son and colleague of Andronicus, resolved to oppress them with the weight of multitudes. Every nerve was strained to form an army of thirteen thousand horse and thirty thousand foot, and the Propontis was covered with the ships of the Greeks and Genoese. In two battles, by sea and land, these mighty forces were encountered and overthrown by the despair and discipline of the Catalans. The young emperor fled to the palace, and an insufficient guard of light horse was left for the protection of the open country. Victory renewed the hopes and numbers of the adventurers. Every nation was blended under the name and standard of the great company, and three thousand Turkish proselytes deserted from the imperial service to join this military association. In the possession of Gallipoli, the Catalans intercepted the trade of Constantinople and the Black Sea, while they spread their devastation on either side of the Hellespont over the confines of Europe and Asia. To prevent their approach, the greatest part of the Byzantine territory was laid waste by the Greeks themselves, the peasants and their cattle retired into the city, and myriads of sheep and oxen, for which neither place nor food could be procured, were unprofitably slaughtered on the same day. Four times the emperor Andronicus sued for peace, 
and four times he was inflexibly repulsed, till the want of provisions and the discord of the chiefs compelled the Catalans to evacuate the banks of the Hellespont and the neighborhood of the capital. After their separation from the Turks, the remains of the great company pursued their march through Macedonia and Thessaly to seek a new establishment in the heart of Greece. After some ages of oblivion, Greece was awakened to new misfortune by the arms of the Latins. In the two hundred and fifty years between the first and the last conquest of Constantinople, that venerable land was disputed by a multitude of petty tyrants. Without the comforts of freedom and genius, her ancient cities were again plunged in foreign and intestine war, and if servitude be preferable to anarchy, they might repose with joy under the Turkish yoke. I shall not pursue the obscure and various dynasties that rose and fell on the continent or in the isles, but our silence on the fate of Athens would argue a strange ingratitude to the first and purest school of liberal science and amusement. In the partition of the empire, the principality of Athens and Thebes was assigned to Otto de la Roche, a noble warrior of Burgundy, with the title of great duke, which the Latins understand in their own sense, and the Greeks more foolishly derive from the age of Constantine. Otto followed the standard of the Marquise of Montferrat. The ample state which he acquired by miracle of conduct or fortune was peaceably inherited by his son and two grandsons, till the family, though not the nation, was changed by the marriage of an heiress into the elder branch of the house of Brienne. The son of that marriage, Walter de Brienne, succeeded to the Duchy of Athens, and with the aid of some Catalan mercenaries, whom he invested with fiefs, reduced above thirty castles of the vassal or neighboring lords. But when he was informed of the approach and ambition of the great company, he collected a force of seven hundred knights, six thousand four hundred horse, and eight thousand foot, and boldly met them on the banks of the river Sisyphus in Boeotia. The Catalans amounted to no more than three thousand five hundred horse, and four thousand foot, but the deficiency of numbers was compensated by stratagem and order. They formed round their camp an artificial inundation, the duke and his knights advanced without fear or precaution on the verdant meadow, their horses plunged into the bog, and he was cut in pieces, with the greatest part of the French cavalry. His family and nation were expelled, and his son, Walter de Brin, the titular duke of Athens, the tyrant of Florence, and the constable of France, lost his life in the field of Poitiers. Attica and Boeotia were the rewards of the victorious Catalans. They married the widows and daughters of the slain, and during fourteen years the great company was the terror of the Grecian states. Their factions drove them to acknowledge the sovereignty of the House of Aragon, and during the remainder of the fourteenth century, Athens, as a government or an appendage, was successively bestowed by the kings of Sicily. After the French and Catalans, the third dynasty was that of the Accioli, a family plebeian at Florence, potent at Naples, and sovereign in Greece. Athens, which they embellished with new buildings, became the capital of a state that extended over Thebes, Argos, Corinth, Delphi, and a part of Thessaly, and their reign was finally determined by Mohammed II, who strangled the last duke and educated his sons in the discipline and religion of the Seraglio. Athens, though no more than the shadow of her former self, still contains about eight or ten thousand inhabitants. Of these, three-fourths are Greek in religion and language, and the Turks, who compose the remainder, have relaxed, in their intercourse with the citizens, somewhat of the pride and gravity of their national character. The olive-tree, the gift of Minerva, flourishes in Attica, nor has the honey of Mount Hymettus lost any part of its exquisite flavor. 
but the languid trade is monopolized by strangers, and the agriculture of a barren land is abandoned to the vagrant Wallachians. The Athenians are still distinguished by the subtlety and acuteness of their understandings, but these qualities, unless ennobled by freedom and enlightened by study, will degenerate into a low and selfish cunning, and it is a proverbial saying of the country, from the Jews of Thessalonica, the Turks of Negropont, and the Greeks of Athens, good Lord deliver us. This artful people has eluded the tyranny of the Turkish bashaws, by an expedient which alleviates their servitude and aggravates their shame. About the middle of the last century, the Athenians chose for their protector Kisar Aga, or chief black eunuch of the Seraglio. This Ethiopian slave, who possesses the sultan's ear, condescends to accept the tribute of thirty thousand crowns, his lieutenant, the Waywod, whom he annually confirms, may reserve for his own about five or six thousand more, and such is the policy of the citizens that they seldom fail to remove and punish an oppressive governor. Their private differences are decided by the archbishop, one of the richest prelates of the Greek church, since he possesses a revenue of one thousand pounds sterling, and by a tribunal of the eight geranti, or elders, chosen in the eight quarters of the city, the noble families cannot trace their pedigree above three hundred years, but their principal members are distinguished by a grave demeanour, a fur cap, and the lofty appellation of archon. By some who delight in the contrast, the modern language of Athens is represented as the most corrupt and barbarous of the seventy dialects of the vulgar Greek. This picture is too darkly coloured, but it would not be easy, in the country of Plato and Demosthenes, to find a reader or a copy of their works." The Athenians walk with supine indifference among the glorious ruins of antiquity, and such is the debasement of their character that they are incapable of admiring the genius of their predecessors. End of section 13